And welcome to episode four of the Wrexham Legends Lounge podcast. That was seamless. I'm, I'm impressed with that. I'm keeping that forever. Um, <laughs> with, with myself, Andrew Pollard. Joining me this week uh, in the, the Legends Lounge is Mr. Mark Cartwright. Mark, how are you doing, mate? I'm good, thanks, Andrew. Yourself? Yeah, cracking. Absolutely cracking. Um, thanks for giving us some time to come in and uh, talk about, well, we talk about your Wrexham career. Uh, that certain club that we probably shouldn't talk about, but we will talk about who you went to after Wrexham. Um that will be Shrewsbury. Wrexham, we love Brighton at Wrexham, but yeah, we'll, we'll probably touch on Shrewsbury. Um, and the fact that you've gone from um, a goalkeeper into the, or well, you worked as a technical director at Stoke City in the Premier League, but well, for seven years, I think it was, what, six of those, five of those were in the Premier League. And you're now a consultant with the, uh, the FA, which is just this mad career uh, trajectory. So there's a whole lot to unpack with you, your good self. Um, I guess the first question for the, you're the first goalkeeper we've had on this. We've had, we've had Mark McGregor, um, right back, turn centre half. Well, centre half, turn right back, turn centre half. I, I only discovered that. He wasn't tonight. big enough to be a centre half. He was too small. <laughs> Stick him in the right back position. He, he was a hell of a right back, uh, but it was I, I didn't realise until speaking to him uh, on the very first episode of this, which you can find on all podcast platforms now. Just search for Rex and Legends Lounge podcast. Also on YouTube at the same do that. Um, but yeah, the first episode, Maka. I, I thought he was always a right back who moved into centre half for that last season, but he said that he was always a centre half, and it just happened that he got his game, uh, his game time at Wrexham as a as a right back. So that was something to learn. Episode two, we got John Peely Morris, who set up the Wrexham Legends group because this is uh, the Wrexham Legends podcast, where um, the Wrexham Legends are a, a te- well, a group of former players who get together to, to play games uh, and raise awareness for local charities, local football teams, uh, local causes. Um, lots of good stuff to come from that, and it's obviously with. The last year being the last year, it's been um, a bit of a um, it's been a bit of a stop on that, obviously. But things are getting going, and there's plenty of irons in the fires. So yeah, episode two is John P D Morris, the the the, um, the chairman, as it were, of Wrexham Legends. Episode three, Neil Wainwright, that's still available. That's a great listen. And now episode four, our first goalkeeper, as I was saying. And I guess I have to ask the question: Why a goalkeeper, Mark? That all right? Uh, well, the honest answer is, when I was at primary school, all I could do was kick people. So I got put in. <laughs> um, so the, the teacher at the time wouldn't let me play out because they just kept kicking and hurting people. So, and and it just it just went from there. Brilliant! That's, I, I love the answer. I thought you were going to say, "Oh, maybe I wasn't great with the ball, or I was really tall, or I was athletic." But no, I just I play midfield and boot people. Well, well, I don't know. What was it? Was it midfield or defense or just wherever you played? You no, I just people? I just literally ran around kicking people. There was no rhyme or reason to it. If the ball went in that direction, whoever was nearest got got it. And and then eventually, you know, I started injuring people, so I got I got stuck in goal. Brilliant. Uh, how did how did you find that they're being put in goal? And when when did it kind of click in your head, I guess, that I'm all right at this, I'm not too bad. I could and then to get to the point where I can maybe make a career out of this as well. To be fair, um you go through those formative years of not knowing whether you're any good or not, and you probably then hit the where you actually join a proper team and you're actually, you know, you're under 12s, under 13s, under 14s. Um, and then at about 14, I think I started getting trials. Um, and I had a couple of trials with Bolton and Stoke, but I, I wasn't ready for those then because because I was a big lad, I was put in the next age group and that next age group was just too much for me. So I didn't particularly do well there. And then um, 
eventually I went to play for a, a team in Manchester that was affiliated to York City. And, and literally, you know, the lads there, if you were consistently good for the, for the season, you then got a, a trial at York City. And, and it was at that point where I went to York and I started going to York quite consistently during the, the school holidays that I thought, oh, you know, maybe, maybe there's a chance here. Uh, and, it, and it literally came down to, um, what would I have been about, about 15, 16? And I had to, we had a trial, all the, the trialists played one last game on Booth and Crescent in front of the, the then York manager, a guy called John Bird, and the youth team manager, a guy called Ricky Sprazier, who went on to have a great career yeah, yeah. as a coach. And and it was that literally from that one game, I got chosen to go and do my YTS at York. So it was at that point that you started thinking, oh, you know, maybe I've got a chance, but um, the dropout rate was still huge. So my, my parents you know, made me continue with my GCSEs and I had to get, I think, I had to get seven GCSEs of a certain grade or above, I think C or above. And if I didn't get them, they were going to pull me out of my YTS at York. So it made me, it made me continue to work and, and do it. And uh, yeah, so I ended up at York and then um, you go in as a first year apprentice, you don't really play that much. Um, you're just getting used to the training. I, I then caught... Uh, I then got food poisoning, which led to hepatitis. So I was then ill for about six months. And um, <clears throat> so I got over that, went back and back for one week. The goalkeeper that was playing got injured. So I got thrown into a game. And in that game, uh, I got two-footed and, and shredded my cruciate. So I was then out for the rest of the season, told I'd never play football again, told I should, you know, should retire Um and it was that point that obviously all your dreams crumbled. Um, but I, I went for a second opinion, you know, saw a guy in Birmingham who told me to do various different things and, and came back and, and, you know, sort of proved everybody wrong. So how, would you, how old would you be when you that injury? What, like 18, 19, 20? Uh, I was literally, this is actually, on my 17th birthday, I was told by the specialist I'd never play football again. Wow. Happy birthday. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Jesus, that's 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 rough. That, that um, was a bit, that was a kick in the nuts. Mm. Um, um, it also triggered something in me that said, "No, I'll prove you wrong." Mm. Uh, and you know, I went a different pathway, but eventually got there. Yeah, um, I, that, I, I didn't realize that. I, I knew obviously you'd had there was some injury issues later on. I didn't realize it. That there was that the big one, especially such a big one. The You'll never play again, big one at 17. Uh, yeah. I, what and what a hell of a motivation as well for your parents, to be fair, is in like, yeah, as as a as a young kid, I wanted to be a footballer. I was never gonna be good enough. But like yeah. if you were at that point where you are good enough, where you're on the books with a professional football club, to then have that, well, if you don't pull your finger out and get your six or seven or eight GCSEs, this ain't gonna happen. That's that's a hell of a motivator. Um, I guess that, yeah. that shapes you as you go forward as well. Yeah, it did, because obviously from York. Um, I got released as an apprentice and I had the option to go on trial at Sunderland or I had the opportunity to go and do a scholarship in America and go to university. Um, and at, at that point, it, it just seemed like a no-brainer. I, I just, you know, I had, I had Florida or I had Sunderland. So, you know, I, I just jumped straight on the plane and went to Florida. Oh, that, rough on Sunderland there. I, I've never been to Sunderland. I'm sure it's a lovely place. I've never been to Florida. I've, 
I've heard that's a lovely place as well. Um, <laughs> just, what was just your... slightly warmer than Sunderland? <laughs> uh, um, how um, how was that then to go like? Well, what age would you be then? Like what, 18, 19? 18, 18. An eighteen-year-old moving. Not just. It's not like because I mean, if you went to Sunderland, uh, well, where were you based at the time? By the way, before that, uh, Macclesfield. So Macclesfield to Sunderland. So to us in the UK, that's a bit of a trek. I guess yeah. in America, it's nothing because they'll, they'll travel for like eight hours or whatever. Yeah. And it's just like, it is what it is. It's fine. Um, whereas like Maxwell to Sunderland is still a bit of a trek. But to then, yeah. rather than moving from Maxwell to Sunderland to move from Maxwell to Florida, um, how was that to acclimatize to all that? Or, or what wasn't much of the acclimatization? Was it just like, no, oh, this is fine. I'm enjoying this. Um, it was a bit, you know, obviously the first, you go there, you're full of excitement. It's completely new. Um, you know, you have to start, you have to go to classes, you have to go to university, you obviously play um, the football and, and everything else. And, and we had a really good team. Um, but I think at some point in my immature head, I decided, no, I'm, I'm too homesick. I, I want to go home. So I stopped, I stopped going to the classes, but carried on playing the football. Um, we won the national championships. I told them I wasn't coming back. Didn't take any of the final exams, completely failed everything. <clears throat> Came back here and uh, Ricky from York rang me and said, look, we're playing Chef United. We haven't got a goalkeeper. Will you, will you come and play a game for me? And I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. I'll do that, see where it takes me. So I went and played the game and it was blowing a gale. And the gale was, the, the wind was that strong. It was blowing the portable goals back off the pitch. Wow, okay. Absolutely throwing it down with rain. It was freezing. It was just horrible. And I think, and I, and I, yeah, and I caught the flu from it. So I was ill then for two weeks. And I was lucky enough then that the, my coach from America rang me up and said, have you, you had second thoughts? And straight away, I just went, yeah, back. And, and that was it again. You know, it's like we're talking about that switch being flicked. I just went back, stayed there for a year, knuckled down, did my grades, you know, got everything going. Um, and I didn't even think once about coming back then. So that, that cured me of any homesickness. Chef United away, that cures any problems. That other one game in, in the piss wet rain, uh, catching the flu. Uh, yeah. And then it's like, yeah, again, you realise how, how like, well, Florida sounds a lot more of a appealing proposition, I guess. <laughs> so what was it that when you went back to the States and what prompted you to think that I'm going to go back to the UK now then? So was it Stockport after that? Or was it back no, to no, York? That, that, that's, that's actually a myth. Everybody's, everybody seems to think I was at Stockport for, I think it was a year or two years, but I've never yeah. never been there. I've been there, but I've never played for them. Right. <clears throat> so I don't know where that's come from. Um, so no, so I, I went back, I think I was back in the States for another two years. And my dad um, had obviously improved, got better, grown up, all that sort of stuff. And my dad said um, to me, did, he, did I want him to see if I could get a trial when I was at home for a Christmas or just training with somebody? So I said, yeah, you know, let's, why not give it a go? Um, and because my dad was from the Wrexham area, he, he obviously went to first protocol, was Wrexham. And to be fair to Brian Flynn, he, you know, he had him in the office, had a chat with him and said, yeah, he can, he can come in and train. So um, I came in and trained for two weeks, I think it was, um, and then I went back to Florida and <clears throat> when I went back to Florida, my dad then rang me and I didn't know, but he'd gone back and had another conversation with Brian Flynn. who would said, look, he did really well. If he wants to sort of come back, 
will have him till the end of the season. And, you know, it's up to him then how he does in that three or four month period, I think. So uh, I, t- I took the gamble because obviously deep down, I'd always wanted to try and be a, a professional footballer. So I took the gamble, came back, trained, and, you know, at the end of the season, I was lucky enough to have been, to get offered a, a contract. And, and then it was like, you know, all, all the heavens had aligned for me then. And, you know, just yeah, absolutely brilliant feeling. Yeah. So what year will this be then when you, you, you fought, well, when you came back from the States then for that? 93. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yes, I was in, yeah, about 93, 94. My, uh, my first season was the year we played away at Man United in the FA Cup. That was my first proper season um, as, as the sort of second choice keeper. So, how was that to be involved with? Because that's like, I mean, that's revered to this day as one of the, it's one of the biggest games Wrexham's ever played and it's one of the greatest, like, 15 minutes. Um, obviously, Kieran Durkin putting us one and up at Old Trafford against Man United. Uh, Meg's in Peter Schmeichel and just having his, like, there we go. It was, yeah, I mean, we don't lose a 5-2, um, but it was a hell of a day. How was that to be involved with as just a part of that squad? Well, having, having not been involved in it at all, um, to get involved in a game like that was just, you know, mind-blowing. You know, just even from the fact that been on the pitch in the warm-up, seeing all the Wrexham fans in the away end, to, to sort of going in with 10, 15 minutes to go and it being quite empty and I'm walking in thinking, oh, you know, it's not going to be full because they're thinking it's Wrexham, we'll, we'll steamroll them. And then to come out um, when it's time to kick off and see it absolutely packed, it was just phenomenal. Um, and then, to be fair, like you say, we, we poked the bear when Kizza took the... Uh, yeah, yeah. And when he made Schmeichel, but if I remember, I think Schmeichel got man of the match that game. So, you know, to be fair to the to the team that played, they they just raised their game phenomenally, and and we really really took it to Man United that day. Yeah, it was. It's it's just nuts to even think about that game. Um, and the kit, there's so many great memories. Just like even the kit, the uh, kids' little mags on Schmeichel. It could it couldn't have just been a tapping or, or even a scream. It was just like, no, we're gonna. He's, he's going to nutmeg probably the greatest goalkeeper <laughs> of, of his yeah. generation. Uh, the greatest goalkeeper I've ever seen. No offence, Mark. Uh, Peter Schmeichel. It's like, yeah, it wasn't just a goal. It was that sort of goal. It was, yeah, it, it's, it was a fun time to be a Wrexham fan, which we've, uh, over these last, what, 12, 13, I guess the last 20 years, there's been so many moments where it's not been fun to be a Wrexham fan. Um, yeah. And when you talk about like, Old Trafford being full, like I've, I, like a Rex, I'm a Wrexham fan of like 20, and I'll get another 30 years to age myself, but 27 years, 26 years. Um, and I've only been to two non-Wrexham games. And one was a mate of mine had a free ticket for Man United Swansea uh, about three years ago. And there was still that that kind of just walking um, past Old Trafford cricket ground and going to the ground. It's like, oh shit, this is this is big. This, this is I, I love the race course, but this is this isn't too bad. And you get in the game and it's like this is really, really full. Um, and it was really, really quiet, but back then. I guess in in what like ninety four ninety five whatever it was ninety yeah, no, it was it, to be fair it was it was good and uh, no it, it was uh, I think we'd stayed at the, the 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 club had gone you know sort of over the top with us and we'd stayed at Carden Park the night before and yeah. the bus had taken us from there so we'd left all the cars it was just you know everything about it was it was just out of this world you know it was a different experience to the one we were used to yeah. Oh. At that point in time, obviously we had Andy Myrick was was first choice, um, and it was a phenomenal, a phenomenal sermon for Exeter for so many years. I think 
again, when he left, some fans maybe, I don't know, it got, I think for some fans it tarnished it the way he left uh, to go to Sunderland uh, because of some people thought that he was involved in, in um, I guess, tapping up Neil Wainwright, which wasn't the case um, it was no. yeah, at all um, from speaking to Wally, which is available in episode three on iTunes and podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. Um, throw that in there. But I mean, we, this is Andy Murray. We'd signed for, I think it's like 200 grand from Nottingham Forest. He played in the first division and who had already cemented in that Wrexham team. So, what did you did you ever I don't know did you think that I've got a chance here or did you know at that point well I'm very much number two and you know if he gets injured I'll, I'll get in and I might get a sniff and see what I can do it's down to me to prove it yeah no Andy um, I knew I was number two um, which was as a 21 year old kid that was you know pretty yeah. okay um, yeah. and Andy was a phenomenal professional you know, in terms of his training, everything he did, because he'd come from a higher level and you could see that, you know, I think he'd started at Arsenal and then gone to Forest and, uh, you know, came down. And, and so his training, and, and I really enjoyed training with him because, I, I, you know, I learned a lot about different techniques and, and also the professionalism of the guy, you know, and how hard he trained, I learned, I learned from that. And um, so it, it wasn't... Yes, I wanted to play, but initially that, that first year or two of me finding my feet in the country as a professional goalkeeper, football, whatever, you know, that, that was, you know, he was the right guy to sit behind. And, and it also it meant that, you know, I didn't get thrown in that often. And, and, um, and when I did, it was only for a few games and then you were pulled out because Andy was back. And so no, it was, um, I knew where I was in the pecking order. Yeah. And at that time it was okay, but you know, as time progressed, I obviously then wanted to, I wanted to run or I wanted to do various, you know, I wanted to play and, and yeah. do that. But uh, and at that point, I, you know, I wasn't going to get past Andy unless he left. And, you know, he, he did in the end. Yeah. Well, what was the, the, like the, well, the, the coaching side of things like then for the goalkeeper? Because these days, I mean, you look at clubs and they've got like five, six, seven, eight uh, first team goalkeepers, just uh, goalkeeper coaches, just for to handle that side of things. Um, what was it like back then? Was, was there anybody that took particular care of the keepers or was it just you're all part of just that general coaching group with, with, with Joey, uh, with obviously with Kev Reeves, with, or with Brian Flynn? Well, uh, initially, I mean, I think back then you were just coming to the end of the area, the era where the goalkeeper was the guy that hung around with the footballers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they were just starting to think. So Kev, Kev Reeves used to do all the goalkeeper warm-ups, um, but there was no real... Kev used to put on some really good sessions, but you know it wasn't a goalkeeper coaching session. It was a, it was a good session. Uh, and then eventually we got... Um, Eddie Nizvecki came in and did a couple of sessions when he could, when he could, and then we got a guy called Fred Davis, who was the ex Shrewsbury manager. He used to come in on on a Monday and do a session with us every Monday, and that's uh, that was my first taste of a goalkeeper coach. And it wasn't really until I left for, for Brighton, uh, and then when I got to Brighton, it was I think we had a goalkeeper coach three or four times a week. And then when I got to the team that you don't want me to mention, <laughs> it had a full-time goalkeeper. So it was only by the yeah. end of my career, really, that we we had a full-time goalkeeper coach. And was that, I don't know, was that, I guess that was just the time, was it then, really? Or like a changing of the time where by, what, when you'd be at Shrewsbury and say, what, it was 2002, 2003, um, was that just a time when the clubs generally had goalkeeper coaches? Or was it maybe... 
I know other teams were doing it back then, but just the teams you're at weren't doing it. No, I think they were starting to become more prevalent. I think they were initially goalkeepers were sent off, warm up on your own, and then come back and join in the games. So you 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 just literally were, you you were where you were where you were because of your natural talent, and then it was just if it got better, you you were lucky. You yeah. know, there was no real coaching of it like the outfield players would get because Ryan Flynn was an outfield player, Kev Reeves was an outfield player, Joey was the outfield player, and you know that was that was their sort of bag, so to speak. And, but eventually, I think it started to become more prevalent to where it is today that, you know, they, they realised that actually we do need to pay attention to the goalkeepers because they can either cost us points or they can actually save us points. Yeah, and it's only one position. That's that's the the tough bit. It's like, you could be a centre-half, but there's two of them on the pitch, sometimes three. You, you could be a full-back, you could be on either side, or you could be pushing into midfield. If you're a midfielder, there's a couple of spots there. There's so many spots for forward-thinking players. But with a goalkeeper, it's just like, that's 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 it. There's the one. Uh, for better or for yeah. worse, if you have a great game, you're the hero. If you don't, it's all on you. Um, whereas, it's, it's so cliche, it's like a, a striker could miss four one-on-ones, but if he pops one in in the last minute, then great. But if, if a keeper saves four shots, but one goes in, it's, uh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, no, I think it just, I think the game grew and, you know, towards the end of my 10 or 11 years as a pro, it had got there. You know, even, I think I finished up at Halifax and, you know, we had a goalkeeper coach there then, you know, so it was... Um, yeah, it became more prevalent, but it wasn't there at the start. That's for yeah. sure. And what was that relationship like with Andy as, as the years went on? When you went from, I guess the the young kid who was happy that he got a, a contract, sort of thing. That like, right, okay, I'm, I'm here. I'm happy to be number two. This is a great opportunity, and I'm getting paid to be a professional footballer. When you start to get, a, I don't know, the years went on a little bit, and you get a bit more older, and you're thinking. I, I quite fancy that number one spot if, if if the chance came up. How how was that relationship over the years with Andy? Because he was such a um, a staple of that team for so long. Oh, it was good. I had, I had a good relationship with Andy. Um, and you, you usually find that the goalkeepers do stick together. Um, and that even though they're all fighting for one spot, they're all, you know, they all get on and they're all sort of looking after each other's back. So um, I don't think I've ever been at a club where I've not got on with the competition, so to speak. So, yeah. Um, and Andy, Andy was, you know, that that lot more experienced than I was. So he was a good one for me to go to and ask advice. And he, you know, he he never worried about giving me advice that was going to affect him because, you know, in his mind, he was on a an upward pathway anyway. So, yeah. um, in that respect, no, I, you know, I think most geeks always got on well with each other. Yeah, and it was the end of the end of the ninety seven ninety eight season when he he would go uh, that summer. He, he make his move to Sunderland um, a month or so after the away rank went. Um, when did you hear about that? And when did it kind of? I don't know. Was there a conversation with Brian Flynn where he's like, "Right, Mark, you're going to be number one next season. Um, get yourself ready." Um, I think th- looking back, I think it had all kicked off a little bit in the in the pre season. Uh, obviously, leading up to pre season. <clears throat> the club must have known something was coming and you know obviously I know a lot more about transfers now than I did then mm, but yeah yeah you know, there was obviously a, the the talks were ongoing with Wrexham and Brian and, and whatnot and and Andy you know probably didn't want to put himself at risk and get injured before his big move to Sunderland which you know I don't think 
yeah, people would probably blame him at the time, but you can't really blame him for that because it's his it's his big move. You know, it's going to yeah. earn him a lot more money. I, in I, I think, for, like, for context, this is a Sunderland who that well the season prior, uh, well the end of that well that season they they got to the playoff final last year's Charlton to go to, up to the Premier League and they will yeah. go to the Premier League that season. So, I mean, as a Wrexham fan, was I sad to see Andy, Andy Marriott go? Of course, but like you've there's the bigger picture here of like it's he's going to a club that. Just missed out on the Premier League. That will go on to get to the Premier League, and and he was at that point in time as well. He's, he's a Welsh international. He got a few caps under his belt by that point for Wales. So I, I don't think, yeah, it's not great of a time as, as a Wrexham fan, but you can't blame him for that one. But yeah, no, so uh, I, I, I think during during preseason, I was playing more and more of the first team games, and then Andy was still there at the start the, for, for the first game of the season, and obviously during that week, I'd been told that I was starting. So it was at that point. I thought, right, okay, I've, I've got the chance here um, and Andy's probably going. And I think Andy probably, with him not starting the season, he probably also knew that he was going as well. So, you know, it worked well all around in the end. Yeah. Um, and how was that like mentally for you then to go from, like you said, you were quite happy to come in and play three or four games a season or come in and uh, to fill in because you were that young keeper who was just looking for the odd game or two of experience while learning. Uh, how was that then from a mental standpoint, to go from that to, I think when I looked at it before, it was 42, 43 games that season, to then be like, okay, it's not just three or four games, you're playing every game. I think initially you don't, you don't, you don't realise it. Um, so initially you're on the adrenaline, you're on a high and everything's, <clears throat> everything's going, you know, according to plan, so to speak. And then you, you'll mentally fatigue and you'll, your body will tire and you'll have a dip in form or whatever, and you know, I was my biggest critic, and I used to beat myself up horrendously if I had a bad game or I'd made a mistake. You know, to the point where I'd probably still be thinking of last Saturday's mistake as we're kicking off for the next game. And so I, I was a player that was, it was a massive. I needed to be confident to, to sort of really to be on top of my game. So you know, for to to do a full season. You know, I was I was very much up and down, and you know, and I didn't realise that until I'd done. So until you actually go through that full season, you don't you don't know what's coming. You know, yeah. so but then once you've done that first season of, I mean, because we played we played all league games, then we had the cup games, then we had the Welsh Cup, and we got yep. through to the finals. You know, so you're probably playing 60, 70 games, and that's a lot, you know, the, the low leagues and being in the Welsh cup as well. <laughs> that, was, yeah, exactly. that was the big one. Um, <clears throat> so when did it kind of hit you during that season or, or did it hit you at all? I guess where you thought that uh, th- this is it, I am number one now. Um, because it, it is like you, you'd gone from that backup keeper who'd, who was there to fill in for, for Andy Marriott when he, when he wasn't available. So then, uh, I mean, does it take like a few games for that reality to kick in of, right. I am, I am number one here. I think it took a couple of months it to really kick in um and then the problem was there was a period of time probably around christmas where i was mentally fatigued and if we'd have had another goalkeeper like andy had me if i'd have had another version of me so to speak that could have i needed to be taken out of the team for probably you know five or six games to get that um, sharpness back to get the mental sharpness back but because you know we didn't have that I kept going and kept going and kept going and probably dug myself into an even deeper hole that was harder to get out of if, if that makes sense yeah. and probably 
by the time I'd started to pull myself out of that hole again, um, I think we brought in Tommy Wright. You know, I think my last yeah, game yeah, was looting away. <clears throat> and I actually had a really good game, you know, and I'd got my confidence back. And then the next minute, you know, we got Tommy Wright coming through the door and that, that just then killed me mentally a little bit. Yeah. And I, I guess Tommy Wright, Northern Ireland International, been there and, and done it sort of thing as well. Was there any conversations with Brian Flynn at that point, or I guess even Price Griffiths, where it was just like, right, okay, Mark, we're bringing this this guy in, or Tommy Wright in, to, uh, just to steady the ship a little bit, or was it just nothing? No, I, that, and, and this is the... This is where, again, the game's changed a little bit. There's a lot... Man management of players is a lot better now, so there was nothing... So nobody... Um, ever came to me and said, look, you know, your standards are slipping, what's wrong? Or, you know, you, you need to work harder or, you know, there was no man management. So literally the first thing I knew was when Tommy was there uh, and that was it. Um, so, you know, that, that didn't um, go down well with me. And I, I probably, you know, masterminded my own downfall then because I was still probably 25 maybe. And I, and I blew my top and that was it. You know, I want to leave. And, you know, I had a three-year contract or two years remaining on a contract. So, you know, I, I shot myself in the foot there. Instead of thinking, okay, this is the, the kick up the backside that I need, you know, I, I didn't react uh, as well as I could have done. And I, and I took all these mistakes with me when I became an agent afterwards. You know, it was like, don't do the things I did. You know, I can help guide you away from the pitfalls of the game. But again, you didn't have those types of people back then yeah. um, helping you out. So was there much pushback on that one as well? So I, I didn't realise until just now that, that you uh, well requested to leave. And was was there a conversation had with Brian Flynn? And was there like, a, well, come on, Mark, calm down. It's okay. It's not because with Tommy Wright, I guess when he came in, he'd be 35, 36. 30, I don't know. He was, he was getting on a bit then. So it obviously wasn't going to be a long-term solution. So you were still it was still very much yours to have that number one shirt. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the, I did it straight away, um, but we brought Kev Dearden in. Um, yeah, that yeah, that'd be the... In, yeah, in that the summer. Year and after, again, yeah. Kev was a great guy. You know, I got on really well with Kev. And I think it was probably then that I spat my dummy out. Um, I think... Uh, and then one of the other problems was I, I went to Bournemouth um, for a week, trained with them. They offered... 50 grand for me at the time and Wrexham rejected it and then so that made me angrier again and because I could have got it was the year they got to the auto windscreens final so yeah. one of my first games for them would have been at Wembley so I was absolutely fuming with that that I'd been blocked from that um, I went to Luton they wanted to sign me but again um, I got sent back to Wrexham because they couldn't agree a fee and it was just so it just seemed like I was getting blocked off and blocked off. And so my relationship with Brian disintegrated. Um, and, and since that, you know, we, it's, it's back, you know, I'm friends with Brian again now, but at that time, that working relationship completely broke down um, until, till the point where I literally got the free transfer to, to Brighton. How, how was Brian? Because the, 
there's a certain Man City game uh, that we, we need to talk about at some point. But I know there's a lot of, because there are some fan questions coming up as well, as well as Mark Cartwright picking his all-time Wrexham 11 that he played with. Good luck with that one. Ah. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, there's lots of questions. Need to talk to you about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there is a um, lots of questions to come up from fans about the Man City game. So I'll save that for later. But I, I remember there was a Bournemouth game where, I, I, I'm sure it was Bournemouth that you had another worldie in um, when they were going for promotion. When they like Mark Steen was playing for him up front um, that that season, but anyway, with Brighton, um, how did, how well, how did Brighton come about? Was there other offers at the time? Because Brighton, not at that point in time, but they go on to have a very special connection with Wrexham uh, because basically, I, I was <laughs> this is the pause bit. Like I'm thinking out loud, like can I score? Can I swear that much on it? Um, I guess we can, but basically we both got fucked over really badly by uh, horrendous owners at times. <laughs> um, but that will come in years later. But the, the Brighton move, how did that come about? It was just bizarre, really. Um, I got I got a phone call from Madge Sue, the secretaries at the time, saying, this is how, how long ago it was. We've got a fax through from Brighton asking if there's any goalkeepers that are surplus to requirements, you know, should we send your name? And it's like, yeah, yeah, send my name. So um, I think they, they sent, or they got in touch with Brighton. Um, and then literally that afternoon, I got a phone call from, um, again, from Madge, I think saying, look, Brighton want you down there tomorrow. You booked in this hotel, get yourself down there. So I drove down the following day, stayed overnight in, in, in a hotel, was kept awake all night by the seagulls outside, squawking away, did, and, and, and went, went into training the following day, uh, trained with Mickey Adams and, his, uh, and the team, and, and he just went, right, okay. Uh, it was funny because he, he said, oh, I, I don't mind signing troublemakers. And I was thinking, <laughs> I'm not a troublemaker. But obviously I'd, I'd fallen out with Brian, so you know he'd obviously not, not put a good word in for me, so to speak. Um, but I, I signed there for a month and then, um, you know, came on as a substitute in, my, in the first game of the season for them because uh, I, I did pre-season and then uh, the keeper that was there started the game and at half-time, one of the other guys said, oh, you're coming on. I was like, don't be stupid. You know, goalkeepers don't come at half-time. No. something going on. And that was it. You know, I went in um, and everything went really, really well until I, until I popped a hernia. Right, I didn't realize that, how, that was how it ended. There, it was a, a big injury at the end of it. Um, Brighton's a lovely place, and seagulls like yeah. uh, it's weird with seagulls. Uh, you hate them, but then you kind of miss them when they're not there. Like I just, yeah. I, I had, I think it's like five years down that brisket, and seagulls, seagulls like pterodactyls, and you hate them. But then as soon as you're not like hearing them, and you're living somewhere else, or back in Rexham in my case, it's like, well, this is weird. This is weird with that. Like how. how it was a great time because we didn't start off particularly well. I think he'd signed 12 new players. So it was very much a new squad. And I think after about five or six games in the league games, Mickey said, right, that's it. Uh, we're training tomorrow. And then everybody's going out. You're going out as a squad, get hammered, get drunk, get to know each other. Um, if you, if anybody leaves before midnight, it's a week's fine. You know, so it was just the only people that were allowed to go home before midnight were people that had to catch a train to get home. So they were the only ones. <laughs> we, we went on an absolutely amazing run and uh, ended up winning the league. You know, it was, 
but we had some good players. You know, it, it helps when you've got Bobby Zamora playing up front who could, you know, pull goals out of his yeah. pocket. Yeah. And how was Mickey Adams to work under as well? Again? How was Mickey Adams to work under? I really liked Mickey because he was very much black or white. You were, you know, and he was he was a tough bastard. I'll give him that. But you knew where you stood with him. And and and, and I think having come from Wrexham where I didn't know where I stood, and it wasn't black or you know, it was a lot of stuff was was done behind your back. So then suddenly landed with Mickey, who was at the start of his, you know, uh, upward pathway on as a manager. Um it was brilliant, but he was brutal. I mean, we we played Millwall in the um, in one of the cups in the first leg. We lost one nil, and he pulled us in the following day. We he he absolutely ran the bollocks off us. So this is after night after the game, got us in at eight o'clock in the morning because that's what times the fans would have to be getting up to go to work. So we were weren't back till midnight. We had to be in training, and he he absolutely ran the knackers off us, put us in the dressing room, made us watch the full 90 minutes, and then he just went at the end of it, went, wasn't as bad as I thought, lads, off you go. <laughs> uh, but well, I enjoyed working with Mickey. Um, for, uh, that's an absolutely brilliant story. Um, I, I, I didn't quite click that it was the time that Bobby Zamora was there as well, because there was that was one of those guys where, again, as a Wrexham fan, you, you hear about these those strikes at other teams. I remember uh, Tully Thorpe being one when he's at Luton where there's just, there's, there's always prolific strikers obviously in the league. I'm, I'm sure there was a spell where people had that thought um, with Gary Bennett when he's at Wrexham thinking, oh, it's that Gary Bennett who bags a lot of the goals. But Bobby Zamora was just, it, it seemed like he was getting like 35, 40 goals every, every year and obviously going to play in the Premier League with West Ham. Um, I, I guess, how was it to play in training with someone like that? Because, you're going against this this striker who did he? I think he even got like one England cap or two England caps. Yeah, no, he, he was phenomenal. I mean, there was one game um, where I, I actually got an assist, and I, all I've done is literally got the ball, volleyed it, and, and he just watched it come over his shoulder, and then he volleyed it, and it just went straight into the top corner. And it was at that point you just knew that everything he touched was going to just see. I've got you there on this one. Before Bobby's, I'm not. I'm not saying he's better than Bobby Zamora, but I maybe I'm saying he's better than Bobby Zamora. I, I saw the exact same move today on a highlights video with Carl Connolly, where it was just uh, it was you. You just hoofed up the ball for Lugger, uh, or hoofed the ball up the pitch, sorry for Lugger, and it's just a ridiculous first touch. And then he's in on the keeper. The keeper comes out and he goes a little. I, I, that's it. Everyone expected him to go inside. You know, obviously he's, he's a lefty, but it was just the angle was horrendous. But he went really far wide and just rolled it in. And that was, an, uh, that was an assist from Mark Cartwright. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of saying Carl Connolly's better than Bobby Zamora there, I think. I'm not going to agree with that because Lugger will probably watch this and uh, you don't want him getting too big-headed. <laughs> it, oh, yeah, it was... It was but no, uh, to, be fair, to, to be fair to Carl, Carl got his move to QPR. He did. Uh, shortly after I'd left for, for Brighton. So, uh, he would, you know, if I said to him, can I come to a game? You know, because they were championship. He, he was brilliant with me. Mm. Um, I went to see him a couple of times, but no, but, you know, it's good to play, you know, I mean, play with um, Matty Taylor at Luton and, and again, he's another yeah, yeah. young player that at the time you could just see had that much ability and athleticism was the biggest thing about Bobby and Matty Taylor. It was, and you could just see that they were going to go higher and higher. 
Yeah. Well, Mike Taylor, he had that habit of just scoring ridiculous goals yeah. for year after year. He'd get like five or six that were just like, how have you done this from oh, stupid angles? Uh, unbelievable left foot. He, you know, he, his left foot was actually better than Carl Conley's. That's, that's oh. I'm, I'm throwing that one out there. I'm, I'm going to snip this clip and I'm going to send it to Carl. But <laughs> <It's, laughs> um, I remember speaking to, um, we did, uh, as part of the Wrexham Legends, we did a, an evening with uh, Cole Conley and Gary Bennett at the Fat Ball, which seems about 25 years ago, but yeah. it was the beginning of last year, just before COVID hit. Um, and in that, because I, I would have loved Cole Conley to play for Wrexham until, until he hung up his boots. But being a realist, I always thought that Carl stay too long I, I i wanted him to stay longer but for his career you're thinking because that that he got his move to qpr but you're thinking that move could have happened a year or two earlier i, I, I don't know it's it's listen it, having been on the, the transfer side of the game it's not that easy to get the move you know so it's um it's very tough you know so for people if you think about the players that Wrexham has developed and gone on, Brian Hughes, Neil Roberts, Carl Connolly, Andy Marriott. Um, you know, there's so many of these lads that Wally even, you know, that Wrexham were very good at developing players, you know, and it is hard. That is a very hard thing to do. And not only is it hard to develop players, it's also hard to sell them and bring money in for them. So, you know, I've got to give full credit to to Brian and Kev Reeves and Joey, the guys that developed these lads and sold them on, you know, because yeah. they did a pretty good job. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, the club needed that money. You know, who yeah. can we sell? Well, we've got, we've got to sell Carl. He's our best player. Who do we replace him with? Well, we'll figure that out once we've, once we've got Carl gone, you know. Yeah. I think with Carl, it was the fact that it was, that was when the Bosman came in. So that one wasn't, so much of an issue with that but like with Brian Hughes I, I, again I love Yozza as a, as a as a footballer one of my favourite players to watch just responsible for individually responsible for so many of my favourite memories as a football fan um, and a random story afterwards where um, I, I don't know if I could, yeah, why not um, where it kind of I got a chance some girl in a nightclub randomly somewhere in, who was a Birmingham fan and we bonded over Brian Hughes. So I've got a lot to praise Yozza for, but uh, that was like 1.3 million, 1.4 million, which is, that's that's ridiculous money then, it's ridiculous money now. And not in terms of for the player, because the player was worth that, but for Wrexham, that is yeah, huge, huge, huge money. Um, and it was, we had that spell where we, we, we brought through so many players because you could have looked at a Gareth Owen even who we brought through and... I mean, Gareth Owen would stay with us uh, throughout most of his career, but we could like th- that was a really viable player that could have gone somewhere at some point in time if if he wanted to cash yeah. in, if he wanted to move, or a Wayne as well. Even Wayne Phillips, I know he did go on to Stockport, but that we we had this Lee Jones when he went to Liverpool um, came mm-hmm. through, and that was a good chunk of change. And like you said, Neil Roberts going like four hundred fifty grand ish uh, to, to Wigan. So we, we had this. Not a conveyor belt as such, but we we kind of brought in players and we, we were prepared to give young players a chance. And I think it's, it's a bit different now where we don't even have a reserve team. So it's there's yeah, that yeah. gap's missing. So you at the moment, it seems like we have lots of promising young kids. And then they we, we, there's not that uh, there's there's a massive gap, a disconnect between that and first team football where they don't yeah. get the opportunity. And then they'll they'll go to another team because they, they've got a reserve team or whatever or uh, with John, John Davis now, who had to go to Brighton and then came back to us now and is thriving as one of our best players. I think I think there's, I mean, there was a lot of players like Gazzo and like, say, Wayne Phillips, you know, um, 
even Andy Morell that you know that came yeah. through, but never then. He, Phil Hardy, you know, when he left Rex, I mean, didn't go anywhere else. And Darren Brace, you know, never really seemed to go anywhere else. It's it seems to me. I don't know whether it was just that era and and there weren't agents and and, and as such, but you know, it seemed like you had to be quite lucky to to get a move. Mm-hmm. As a Wrexham fan, we, I was more than happy because it meant those players stayed around where realistically for their careers, you're thinking they, they could go and play higher. Um, mm. And with that was the thing I think took some people by surprise when Neil Wainwright left because we were, Wally, I only, again, only realised this from speaking to him the other week for episode three of the, this podcast, uh, where he was initially at Crew, then joined Wrexham at 16, did two years of a YTS, and was pro for two years. It was only that that last year of pro that he got into the first team and then he got his move to Sunderland. And I think the reason that was a bit of a surprise for some of us was because we were used to, we, we everybody presumed uh, Wally was a Wrexham lad who'd come through Wrexham born, Wrexham bred, was we'd had, we'd seen Gareth Owen, we'd seen Wayne Phillips, who, yeah, like I said, Wayne got his move. But there was all these these players that came, Stevie Watkin, uh, another one, a great example, who they came through and they, they carried on playing for Wrexham. They could go if they wanted to go, but they were happy to play here and they were happy to stay here. And so when Wally, who we thought was the local lad, um, got the offer to go to Sunderland, it was like, oh, right, okay. Um, and again, you cannot... You cannot at all moan about that move because that was a brilliant move for him. Um, absolutely oh, fantastic absolutely. move for him. And you, you've got to take that chance. But that was that was the first one, I think, in a long time where it was... But he was supposed to be here for like another three, four, five years. What was... Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I think there's players like Gazo and like Waco that probably stayed too long. Hmm. You know, they could have probably moved, but because they were from the area, they didn't want to. Um, you know, that, that can be as... as damaging to your career as you know something else but you know i've got to give them fair credit they were they were loyal to the club yeah i suppose the other side is you don't you don't know what lies ahead so like if if no. you're yeah if you you love the area you're in you love the team you're playing for it's your team for a lot of these players like this is your football club that you've grown with supporting you could go and make that move at 25 26 24 23 and you could move to the other side of the country and you could be miserable. It might not work out or you you might not be getting game time or you might be getting game time, but you you don't like the area. So I don't know, it's that swings around about, but obviously you know more about that than me because you we'll, we'll, we'll get to it in a second, but you would go on to be an agent and then obviously move into your role at Stoke. Um, but on, uh, going back to the playing career, there is we we've covered we've covered Wrexham, we, we've covered um, basically everywhere but uh, Shrewsbury. Um, footballers have got to make a living. Uh, it's it's a professional business. A career is a career. There's no loyalty. Uh, the, the, there is some loyalty, but there's there's minimal loyalty in football because it's especially <laughs> at this level because you've got to make a living. So w- when you went to Shrewsbury, was there any trepidation at all of ah oh, well I had that time at Wrexham or was I suppose from speaking to you now there was maybe a little bit of a bad taste from how you left Wrexham anyway with how things worked out with Brian Flynn. So I guess that wasn't really an issue when, when you went to the Shrews or the Slops. No, by, by then, I don't think I, um, I knew the, the relationship Wrexham had with Chester. So that, that was, that was ingrained. And I don't think it was until I got to Shrewsbury that I realized that it was, you know, it was the same with Wrexham. Um, so, I, I nearly, uh, when we played against each other, I, I found that tough because, you know, the, the fans, the Wrexham fans, to be fair to them, they, they weren't nasty to, to me. You know, I was, I was 
sort of quite pleased to see them. Uh, obviously, half of the team I knew. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't find it particularly bad. I just wanted to, in some ways, I don't think I don't think Brian Flynn was there anymore. So again, that no, it'd be, it'd be Dennis by then, Dennis Smith. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that sort of had dissipated as well. So it was just, a, you know, it was it was a game against my old team. So obviously, I wanted to do well. Um, and I think uh, that. I I nearly chinned one of my own players because of the fact it was against Wrexham. And he, he it was a centre half and he ducked out of a a header. And it, and it basically meant that I I wiped out Andy Morell. Yeah. And it was a hundred percent a penalty. But but Andy had managed to get a final touch on it and, and had knocked it wide. So the ref gave me a goal kick, which was great. <laughs> play advantage but, uh, and on the pitch um, I think I went for the player that had ducked out of the header um, and then I calmed down so by the time we went in I think at full time it was you know I'd calm, calmed down a little bit and then um, the player came in it was just me and him in the dressing room didn't say anything so I, I left it I wasn't, wasn't bothered and then, you know, the, the rest of the team came in. And the moment the manager and the assistant manager came in, he tried to blame me. And that was it then. I just I just got up and I went, as soon as I went like that, I had the assistant manager hanging on my arm to pull me down. And and that was when I realised that it actually meant a hell of a lot more to me than I, than I thought it had. Yeah. Um, and to this day, I still wish I'd chinned him. <laughs> did, did we get any names on, on who this mystery centre half was? No. No, he knows who he is. Knows. Yeah, well, there was only two room playing that game, so it's you know, fifty-fifty on that. Uh, but that was um, that was now a manager. All right, okay. So now is that even more right? Uh, that was uh, the the away game. The one at Game Meadow was. I mean, lots of over there, and that's one of my favourite Wrexham away games. <laughs> and there's a lot of because that that effectively steals us promotion with that last that, and it. You talk about the Chester and, and Shrewsbury and the Wrexham rivalry, and yeah. I mean, Chester is that one there, and Shrewsbury's—it's kind of one A, one and one A. It's there, thereabouts. Right. But I mean, our, our rivalries—I mean, I, I can't be too—I uh, can't get on a high horse about this because the, the longer we've gone on in the National League, I mean, some seasons our rivals are Altrincham uh, or Northwich Victoria because it's just they're the closest to us, sort of thing. We, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, the, the Shrewsbury. I, I think Wrexham will get back. I think you'll get back. I mean, Chester have obviously completely dropped mm. like a stone because of their ownership issues, shall we, shall we say. But again, uh, you know, I think, I don't think it'll be long before Wrexham are back back where they deserve to be and back where they should be. I mean, that's what we're all hopeful of. It's 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 weird. It's, uh, I don't know, it's that... Uh, um... I, don't, I think for a lot of us, we won't believe it until it actually happens because in theory, everything's starting to come slightly in place. It's not all there. Uh, we've got electronic scoreboards, so that's something now, which is really weird to see when you're streaming the games in, in the National League. But, um, I mean, some fans don't believe in the manager we've got at the moment, Dean Keats. Some fans do um, yeah. on, on that. So, and there's, which you're, It's always going to split opinions on that. The squad we've got, is it good enough? Is it not? Again, that splits opinions, but... Yes, it's going to be a big summer on that one. It's it's everything's kind of there, but then we, we've all, like I said, I'm, I'm, I think I'm in that that section of Rex and fans where we're just kind of 
holding off for now. And if it when it if and when it happens, amazing. It'll be great. But there's other the other side of it is just people planning for the championship in five years. It's like, well, I just all I want is to get out of this league. It's yeah, been yeah. horrendous. Um, twelve years, man. It's it, it's wow. grim. It's yeah. It's it's grim. It's grim. But which reason you talking about maybe nearly chin in the centre half? That was the season they got relegated as well. Um, and so I, I would have thought that would have meant a lot to them, that game, is in the, the centre-half um, or whoever it was. It, it shouldn't have meant just everything to you in that one because it was, uh, for, for people who maybe weren't around then or too young, it was um, Lee Jones' last-minute uh, winner. Was that the season we got relegated? Um, yeah, the 2 because um, we got, Wrexham got promoted, we came third and got promoted that year and Shrewsbury got relegated um, down to what would be the conference at that point in time. And that was... April, April the 11th, I've got in my head for some reason of that year. So it was right at the tail end. It was Lee Jones at the at the death, 90th minute to, to win it. Um, right, you're going to have to educate me now. So was I at Shrewsbury 0102? Um, I think you, you, no, I think you were there until yeah. three. It was, then I left, to, I left, went back to America and then came back for the second right. half for the second, for the, yeah. Major well, of the season where they got relegated. I, I did because I was I was thinking this because somebody asked someone asked a question about this as well, um, which we'll get to shortly. Um, a fan's question um, about that game, and I was like, in my head, you played that game, but like I'll double check. And I went back and I watched the the clip, and it, it is Mark Cartwright in that uh, on that one. Um, and it's uh, Jamie Tolley scored a screamer uh, for for Shrewsbury in that game. Andy Morell scored a header from basically the edge of the box where he just got a really good leap on it um, to put his one nil up. Jamie Tolley scored from about 25 yards in the home end, top, top bin sort of thing. And then, yeah. Must, right. Maybe it, was, it probably was that game then because the emotions will have been even higher. And so, yeah, I still wish I'd have hit him. <laughs> I, actually, a, I actually wouldn't have minded doing it on the, I'd have been quite happy to hit him on the pitch and get a red card for it as well. You'd have been a hero, even more so in the Wrexham fans' eyes. I don't know, we, <laughs> we've just won, because that, that game basically sealed his promotion. From what I remember, it was one of the games that kind of sealed, promote, sealed relegation for Shrewsbury. And then if you had chinned one of their centre backs, that would just been the perfect, the perfect uh, way to end it. What was I mean? What what's your um, lasting memories of that time at Shrewsbury? Um, again, you know, I, I enjoyed it because I had a I played some games. I had a good battle with the laddie in Dunbar, and uh, I got on really well with Kevin Ratcliffe, who was the manager. And, and I think, um, you know, we, we had some good you know, good young players. We had Ryan Lowe, who's obviously Plymouth manager now. Luke Rogers was another one that was the uh, sort of Bobby Zamora style spoken about. Scored a shed load at that point in time. It yeah. could have gone yeah. could have gone higher. Um, we had a we had a good team, but we just just everything that could you know. And, and again, you know, I witnessed this at Stoke. You know, when when you're having one of those seasons where everything that can go wrong does go wrong, then, you know, you, you just got to accept that the shit's going to hit the fan and, you know, it's, it's going to go, it's going to go wrong. Um, and I think that just, it just ended up like that. You know, everybody, we had five games in hand at one point and, you know, we were only, I don't know, three points outside of uh, the relegation spots, but because the rot had set in, those five games became four, became three, became two, and then all of a yeah. sudden, that's it. You, you've almost resigned yourself to to going down. Yeah, and like after Shrewsbury, you'd have a year at Halifax, but then am I right in thinking it was thirty-one when you retired? Yeah, yeah, and and that was was it a knee injury or? Yeah, it was. Um, basically, you know, my knees started giving up, and 
um, you know, I've had nine, I know it doesn't sound a lot, but I've had nine knee operations and eventually... That sounds a lot, that. mate. That sounds a lot. <laughs> that sounds a well, lot. Well, yeah, but somebody like Tony Humes can probably come back with about 20, yeah. you know, yeah, but... Um, no, it, it, I, I, I played the season at Halifax. Chris Wilder was, was manager and... I knew my t- I knew I couldn't continue, um, and I, and I, we sat in the, the sort of water cabin office type thing at the ground, and just basically said, "Look, time's up," you know, um, and, and we went, you know, that that was it then. So I, I played a little bit part time, but I, I couldn't I couldn't cope, you know. It was uh, I think I had had you know. I just had to have operation after operation after operation, and they get to the point where just stop putting yourself through it. Yeah, yeah. And what was there? Because like thirty one's a young age to, to quit football, especially for a goalkeeper. Um, but had you already? Did you have a rough idea of what you wanted to do at that point? At once you your career came to an end, like had you already thought, well, okay in uh i guess hopefully you get another four five six years and then you're making plans or were you already like i don't know did was there something already in that head of what you could do next um no i i'd started planning for that uh, when i was at wrexham I, I also um helped run a creative design and print company when i was at, when i was playing for wrexham but obviously then when i went to brighton and shrewsbury and halifax that 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 got stopped so I genuinely didn't have the first clue of what I wanted to do because you know you're in your late you're in your twenties you don't think your career is going to end yeah when you get to when the magical three appears at your age you start thinking well, I've I've got a few more years yet so it did take me a little bit by surprise that that was it it was over um, so no I, I didn't have the first clue what I wanted to do I didn't know whether I wanted to go and be a goalkeeper coach or, or you know or try and do something completely different. But again, you're in a, football's very much a bubble. And and even at that level, I I was still earning a a good wage. So if you come out of football and you start looking for a job that is going to pay you a similar salary, you're not going to walk into that job. So it's it's a real reality check of, oh shit, what what am I going to do? Um, And then I started getting... Um, players I'd played with ringing me up, asking me for advice. What do I do with this? What do I do with that? My contracts. And then, uh, you know, I just thought, yeah, well, I'll do a, did a couple of deals and thought, yeah, no, I, I like this. You know, there's a bit of adrenaline to it. There's a bit of planning for a player's career and there's teaching them don't fuck up like I did. Uh, and, you know, so I got into that and I, and I really enjoyed the agency side of things. Yeah. What, what was the, the biggest, I guess, learning curve of getting into football agency from going from that, that person who people just that, that mate or ex player that these former teammate who they ring for some advice to making the formal transition to I'm an agent. What was the, the, the toughest thing to, to get to grips? Well, to get to grips with, I guess. Um, the toughest thing to get to grips with within the football agency world at the time was how cutthroat it was. Um, and, you know, wherever there's a lot of money, there's a lot of corruption. And yeah. that, that's not me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't like that side of things. So that was a particularly eye-opening experience at times. Um, and also just 
it's always easy to negotiate somebody else's contract. You can always be a little bit more ballsy when you're when you're you know you, you you're dealing with somebody else than it is yourself. But I'd always done my own contract, so I sort of had it, I knew what to do. And because I'd you know, done my degree in America, the lads thought you know I was intelligent, and so they, you know they'd ask for advice. And so I think I think it's just that the hardest part of being an agent is actually getting the players to sign for you. That's the tough because there's so many agents out there, um, and, and I did it on my own for a while. I coached up at Livingston in Scotland. Did the goalkeepers up there for a little bit whilst I was um, learning my trade, and, and then I ended up at a, a law firm in Stoke, and, and that was sort of where my agency career really sort of took off. And what was I guess at any one point in time? What was the most well, what, the amount well most amount of players that you had um, under your I guess stewardship as your as your clientele. Um, it's difficult because you can only manage so many. Um, as, as a firm, I think at the time we maybe had you know well over a hundred players, um, but I would probably say I was focused on about twenty five. Yeah, and again, you know, varying levels. You know, from from Jack Butland to Luke Rogers or. Um, Jake Edwards, you know, players like that. So it, it was all different levels and you, you're trying to find, because I, I knew, because I'd never played in the Premier League, I couldn't just walk up and sign a Premier League player. So I, I took a lot of time and spent a lot of money travelling to Europe and getting to know clubs and agents in Europe and, and bringing players into the Premier League from from throughout the world. And that was actually, because of that, that's, Making that a strength is actually the reason I ended up at Stoke because they wanted to open that door to the world. But I'm actually, I actually did my first ever Premier League deal was to take a player direct, for the first time direct from South Korea into the Premier League. When I took a, a player called Chung Yong Lee from SE Seoul to, to Baltimore Andrews. And that was the first time it never ever been done directly. So that was quite a big thing for me. Yeah. But again, there was so much behind the scenes going on in that deal. It was it was difficult for a young, inexperienced agent. You know that that was hard. That was hard. Because we we as as football fans, we hear about all the as they call it the super agents, your uh, kids, and and whatnot, um, who don't always have the greatest reputations, but get lots of money and get big deals done and take a huge, ridiculous uh, cut of things. Um, and some will say they're, um, I don't know, a curse on the game, I guess is one way to put it. But was there anything, your time as an agent, cause obviously I'm not, not saying you're in, in with that in that, that sense, but was there anything working as an agent when you say about the, the deal there to take the lad to, to Bolton where it was just, it was such a, a struggle to get the deal done. Was there anything where you thought like, this isn't for me. Um, it's just too much, too much hard work, or there is too much corruption in it. Um, or alleged corruption, should we say? Oh, there is corruption in it. I okay, <laughs> I, I was being diplomatic there. <laughs> no, I think um, it was one of those things where you know, past experiences, the, the injury, and, and you know that. All right, I'll I'll show you type of attitude helped. I was also with a um, with a law firm where they were very much ethical because they were a law firm, you know. So they yeah, had to yeah, do it. Yeah. So it was good having it was good having 
a law firm behind you because you knew that if it ever went really, you know, in, in a place where you didn't want it to go, you had a law firm that could that could come in and you know wipe the floor with with a lot of people. So that helped me uh, in in a big way. And and the guy, um, you know, that was my boss at that time, you know, is a great friend now, you know, and and he still looks. But they they looked after players. You know, these players like, you know, Kia and me, the agents, the super agents, you know, they they get a lot of money, but some of them actually do really care about their players and, and they're the good ones, you know. Yes, you get the ruthless ones that don't really give a, a rat's ass about the player. It's all about them and how much money they're going to earn. Um, but, you know, for every sort of three of them, there's, there's a good one, you know, and, and you, you know, players will gravitate to the good ones eventually. Yeah. And you would, it would be, I think it is like seven years you had at Stoke. So it's a, that's a fair old time. And for most of that time, they were a Premier League club. So how, obviously you said that it was because you went, in, you went to, basically you opened the door to, to Europe, as it were, um, or certain certain areas. Like, how did you end up directly involved in Stoke then? Was that just, they they put out a vacancy for that? Or did they see you in the headhunt year? How did that um, arrangement come about? You know, I think there was a list of people given to Tony Pulis at the time and, you know, it all transpired that, you know, I was the one that they, they came for. Um, and to get back into the club environment was something that I jumped at straight away. And the fact that they're in the Premier League, you know, that that helps as well. Yeah. I mean, there'd be Tony Pulis there, Mark Hughes are coming as well. Um, if, is there anyone that you can say where any particular player where you earmarked and said, we should sign this guy? And it never happened, and then they went on to become, I don't know, some superstar, or or just they this massive name somewhere. Yeah, there's there's there's, there's several of them. Um, there was a German centre half who was a was a young lad, and he was absolutely brilliant. And I came back, said to to Mark Hughes, said to the board, listen, he's going to cost us, I think, twelve million euros. But I'm telling you now, if we sign him, we'll sell him for 50 million. He's, he's that good. And um, we got the lad and the agent in the building. And Mark, you know, did his thing. And for whatever reason, it never happened. And a year later, he went to Bayern Munich for somewhere in the region of 50 million. So uh, there's, there's, there's two or three of those. But for every couple of those, there's also ones where you earmark them and then they, they, their career yeah. takes a downward turn. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's trying to balance, you know, the good ones with the not so good ones. Yeah. Yeah. It's like any football club, there's going to be, there's those kind of can't miss surefire hits and it just, whatever reason doesn't work out. And then there's those other ones where you look at them and thinking there's not much there. And then they go on to just something happens and they go to a different level. But, but what, what sort of, um, well, just to give people an idea then, what deals were you involved with at Stoke in terms of, just a few examples of the players that you helped bring through the door. Um, Eric Peters, who, the left back who's still at Burnley in the Premier League. Yep. Bojan, um, Arnautovic, Shakiri. Um, so Shakiri come from what? Was it Interman at that point in time? Because he left. Well, he, he was on loan at Interman. It was yeah. a difficult one because he's actually he, he was at Bayern Munich. But Inter Milan had loaned him with an obligation to buy him, but then couldn't afford the obligation. So we bought the obligation 
from Inter Milan to buying from Bayern Munich. See, that sounds nuts to think about. Like, no disrespect to Stoke, but thinking, well, Inter Milan have had to cancel this because they can't afford to buy the guy. So Stoke are coming in to pay it instead. Um, and obviously, he was phenomenal for Stoke. But just such a, a great player with like calves like this, just yeah. r- ridiculous physique on the guy. Uh, and Marko Wanatovic, who they go and get a, a shell of the money for when he, he made his move to uh, to China. Um, some big deals. Like, well, like I said, even Eric Peters, who's now still playing Premier League football, playing for Burnley. Yeah, I guess uh, Jack, Jack Butland we bought in. Um, you know, but we also had some really, really strong players like John Walters, you know, Ryan, Ryan Shawcross. Yeah. Um, Glenn Whelan. You know, we had some we had some really good characters in there. And and that was from, obviously, from Tony's day that, you know, he was all about the character. And and we just made it a little bit more. With Mark, it was, the, the players were ready for that expansive football and and to, to bring in that sort of more European player as well. And, uh, yeah, we, we had some had some incredibly good times for, under Mark Hughes at Stoke. Yeah, I, you mentioned Johnny Walters there. John Walters, another ex Wrexham, who went on to have a from when he played for Wrexham and then went, obviously played for Chester after that. Went on to have a hell of a career for himself. Just he was one of those we, we signed him and Lee McKevley one summer, and it was Lee McKevley had all the talent in the world and maybe didn't quite put the work in, but there was there was a real player there on the ball. Whereas Johnny Walters, I think he scored maybe six goals all season, played pretty much every game. Six goals in 40 odd games for a striker, not much, but he worked his bollocks off everywhere, yeah. covering every blade of glass, grass. And then when it came to the end of the season, we opted to let John Watts go and we kept Lee McEvely. And Johnny Watts went on to, uh, to Chester, then he go on to, uh, I guess, Ipswich from there to Sunderland, yeah. Stoke, and yeah, went, went on to have a great career. Um, yeah. You know, for, for any footballer out there, John Walters should be your role model because, in terms of effort, work rate, you know, strength of character, everything. You know, was he the most technically gifted footballer in the world? Possibly not. You know, he didn't have Bojan's skill. But what he had was a mentality that meant you had to destroy him to stop him getting that ball or to stop him, you know, running an extra kilometre in a game. Everything about him was just, you know, a next-level attitude. And I think young players need to look at people like that. You know, forget the ones that have got all the talent and all the, the flair and the, the pomp and all that sort of stuff. Have a look at the ones that have really had to work to get where they need to be. And, and John Walters is one of those. And he deserved every penny that he earned out of that, uh, out of his career. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned him there. You mentioned him a couple of times. That's another one I'd like to brief, briefly touch on. Like, with Bojan, it was this guy who came from Barcelona who was, many would say they threw around like the next Messi, which is ridiculous. It's like for 30 years, there was always this, oh, this guy's the next Diego Maradona. It's like, yeah, yeah. You, you're never going to live up to that because it's ridiculous. I mean, some might say Lionel Messi is maybe living up to that finally, but you've got players like <laughs> Ariel Ortega who had great careers, but didn't quite be Maradona or Marcelo Gallardo, who's now, I think he's managing River Plate, didn't quite live up to that reputation. But with Bojan, it was, he's an ex, he's an ex Messi. He's that next Barcelona prodigy. And is it just, I don't know, because to, to look at him, is it maybe a, a physical thing with the Premier League because he's quite slight? I think he's maybe about five or seven. Or was it just a, a mentality thing? Because like technically he was doing it for Barcelona for a spell when he was in and out of the team. He, he'd come in and he'd do well. So, what what quite didn't click for him at Stoke? I know it did. It did work for him at Stoke. I mean, he was absolutely phenomenal, and he's and he had such agility, um, athleticism, and, and how quick his feet were. You know, he he could bounce away from a tackle, 
and I, and I think we we absolutely saw the best of Bowie until he he did his cruciates. Mm. You know, he did his cruciate in the FA Cup game away at Rochdale, and you know it wasn't a tackle, it wasn't anything. You know, he went to shoot, stopped, took an extra touch. I think it was the extra touch and the movement that, that did him. Um, but you know, he he was. Like I say, he was phenomenal. We could have sold him for millions and millions of pounds if he'd have carried on the season the way he was going. He would have gone to Arsenal, Liverpool, Man City. Well, it was talk at one point of going back to Barcelona. Even that was he was yeah. Well, they had a buyback because they had buyback clauses in nearly all the contracts. So he was that he was that spectacularly good. Um, and he did. He, he came back from his cruciate in record time. He did it in six months. He got back into the team, and he did really well. But then I think Mark. Um, went down a different route and, you know, trying to change things at Stoke. Um, the formation was slightly different. Didn't necessarily suit Bojan or the position he was playing. And, and, and Bojan was at that point, he just wanted to play, you know, so he wanted to go out on loan and, and, and eventually, you know, you go, you go out on loan, you come back, you go out on loan, you come back, yeah. you know, it's time you just have to, you have to move on completely. But again, you know, we had we signed two lads from from Barcelona. We signed a left back called Mark Muniesa, who the Stoke lad. Um, you know, he's, he's a bit like Del Boy. He gave absolutely everything, but technically he was very good as well. Um, again, he just wasn't the, the tallest. But but him and Bojan came in and took the levels of professionalism at Stoke up another level. You know, because they were the first ones in. They were always doing the gym work, the pre-activation, everything. You know, they they took it to another level, and I think. You know, it also their signings took Stoke to another level. You know, with, yeah, yeah. If they had the likes of Shakiri or Anatovic, we wouldn't have been able to do had we not already taken in a cup because we. It probably took three or four years to get over the Tony Pulis long ball, long throw merchants. So you know, when you're speaking to agents and players, oh yeah, you just you play shit football. Yeah. I know we don't. You know, we play. It's Mark Hughes. We played you know, nice fluid football, and, and it took us a while to get over that. But assigning those players certainly helped. I think another player who I obviously clearly has name value and has been there and done it, some of the big biggest teams in the world, would be Michael Owen. So were you involved in bringing him in as well? No, he, he was there. Um, so he retired the season. I, I got there in November um, 2012, I think, or whatever it was. And, and he retired at the end of that season. Right. Um, I think he just had enough. I, it, it kind of came across like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, he's been quite vocal in why he'd had enough, um, you know. And it's a shame, really, because if he'd have, if he'd have stayed, you know, that at the end of that season we we changed managers, so you know he may have played more under Mark Hughes and, and actually enjoyed his football again. But you know, he'd made that decision. That was it. He was he was out. Um, how, how was it with working with Mark Hughes? Obviously, a Rex and lad, uh, Rabin, uh, technically from. Um, how was it to work with Sparky? And I guess Mark Bowen would be there as well. And was Eddie there as well? Eddie Niseki as well. Yeah, so Eddie Eddie had met before when he'd come in and done a couple of training sessions at at, at Um, Mark had met um, whilst I was at Welsh under 21, but didn't really really know him. Um, But he he was brilliant. He, He was used to working in the sort of system that we had at Stoke. So he he was very very easy to get along with um you knew when you found a player that he would really like because he, he would you know you, you could tell 
you could tell when he wasn't quite sure, but you could tell when he was was excited by somebody. As an example, is there one player you remember where you're thinking that Sparky really likes him? You could just tell. Um, well, Bojan would be one. Yeah. Um, Arnautovic, we were we, we were um, excited by, but there were so many red flags on Arnie from his <laughs> press in Germany. Yeah. and how it was and we ended up flying to Germany uh, me and Mark and we spent three hours with him in a restaurant just talking to him talking about football about the stuff that he'd uh, got up to in Germany and you know when we came out you know Mark just turned to me and went I, I can handle that so we just went right okay well if you know if you if you're telling us you can handle that then we'll do it because you know I think it was about Two and a half million pounds at the time. Wow! So it was, wow! And then, um, yeah, Marco came okay from that part of the world, you know, where it was a very, it's a very tough part of the world. So if happy, he did not mind telling you he wasn't happy, and his brother, who was his agent, certainly didn't mind telling you how angry they were at the club or whatever. So, um, but he, but again, you know, he, he was a, he was an incredible player, you know. Yeah. He could have been anything. On his day, he was unplayable. Yeah, yeah. I, but it was again, you know, he needed to grow up a little bit, and he did. He did grow up at Stoke, and, and I think you know that that pushed him on. You know, and but uh, he was a character, that's for sure. But as we start to wrap this up a little bit, because I'm realizing the time I've kept you for ages, there, Mark. So thanks for oh, your so yeah. patient. What uh, one or two last questions on Stoke? I guess one as a Wrexham fan, we have to ask because speculation is always nuts because we, we have these new owners and people think of the moon that we're going to bring Alex Ferguson back at retirement or something to come and manage us. Uh, do you reckon Mark Hughes would ever have any interest in, in coming to Wrexham? That's a no. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think Mark will probably think he's got unfinished business in the Premier League. Rightly so, yeah. And Mark, and Mark still is a Premier League manager, that's for sure. Yeah, um, and Jack Buck- Butland, like, what, what's your thoughts on him? Because it seemed like for all the world, he was England's next one incarnate. It was like waiting to happen. Uh, once Joe Hart was kind of formally done with England, Jack Butland was the one who was going to be next. Um, and you've had the keepers that have come in, like Jordan Pickford. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a Wales fan, so I don't really care. But with Jordan Pickford, to me, I watch him play and thinking, there's... There's a good, there's a good goalkeeper in there, but not a great goalkeeper. I really like Nick Pope. I think to me, Ben Foster, get him back in there somehow. I love Benny Foster, yeah. but um, yeah, uh, Nick Pope's there. You've got other keepers. I, th- I think to me, um, John Pickford's like a fourth or fifth, probably best option for England. Uh, Dean Henderson, um, but uh, with with Jack Butland, where's why is he not playing Premier League football? Why is he not in that England conversation? I think with Jack, um, the year. So I think there was a culmination of several things. Stoke were having a bad season and the season we got relegated was also the season that everybody was talking about Jack taking over from, from Joe. And I think Jack possibly was concentrating on that because the Euros were coming up as well. Yeah. I think he was concentrating on that a little bit more than he was Stoke. So that meant he wasn't having a particularly great season at Stoke. Um, and Jordan Pickford wasn't having a particularly great season at Everton, but I think he just about had the better of the, the bad seasons. Sure, the logic says that the more you, if you think, if you're worrying about, I need to be on that Euro squad for England, 
okay, that, that's your worry. But like to get to that worry first, you need to be playing well for, for your club. That should be the immediate worry because otherwise you're not going to be getting picked in the squad, yeah, let alone starting. But this, is the daft thing. this is the daft thing, though. Like, when we signed Jack for Stoke, he'd played more times for England than he had Birmingham. I guess that's a little bit like Joe Hart. His whole thing when he went alone to Birmingham and or like when yeah. Ben Foster went alone from Man United. Yeah, there's... So, you know, Jack, Jack played, made his international debut for England before he made his first team debut for Birmingham. Right. So it was all a bit topsy-turvy. But again, you know, Jack um, Jack got injured playing for, for England and then he got misdiagnosed. He had the wrong operation, you know, and he came back and then he broke down again. So I think, again, it was... It was the culmination of a lot of things um, that didn't help. And then, then he was loyal to Stoke and wanted to get them back up. Yeah. Um, and, that, you know, that didn't... Um, then the way that we started playing didn't didn't help him. So I think, you know, he, he's probably at that point now where he's back at a Premier League squad and he needs to rebuild his confidence and, and get back going. But, I mean, he was absolutely England material at one point. Yeah, and he was, he was talked about, I remember Liverpool being heavily linked and heavily linked every few weeks. It come yeah. out in the papers that Liverpool were looking at him. When obviously Liverpool got, I guess eventually they get Alisson uh, come in and before that they got, well, uh, Simon Mignolet off, off Sunderland. But it just seemed like for all the, the world, it was Jack, it was Jack Butler who was maybe going to go to Liverpool or maybe Man City when they were looking to replace Joe Hart. And yeah. I guess it's like, still, there's, there's time in his career to, I guess, uh, write, write he, the ship on that one still plenty. Again, he, he's another one that, uh, is a very strong character, and he will, and he trains ridiculously hard. And he's, but he's a nice guy as well, you know. So if he will be doing everything he can to to get back to the levels that he knows he can, he can set. And I've no doubt that when he gets his opportunity at Palace, which he will do at some point, it, you know, yeah. he'll he'll stick and and he'll he'll go again. Yeah. Right to get some fan questions here. They're, they're all they're all relatively kind. Uh, just to give you a heads up, there's a the first one from Rex and Carl on Twitter. This one, okay, we've kind of addressed it already, and it's yeah, I, I like the word no, though, so I'm going to do it again. Um, how does it feel to be involved in one of the most iconic Wrexham games of the early 2000s, which was Lee Jones's last minute winner against Shrewsbury, um, which we, we've touched on. But anything else you'd like to add to that? I mean, what, what's your relationship like with Lee? Because I mean, just from seeing how you lads all interact as former players, you all seem to get on amazingly well. But like, how is that when when Lee Jones pops up past you, right at the death? Is it like, ah, oh, there's my mate? Or is it like, oh, you, you little prick? <laughs> um, to be fair, you don't you don't you're not looking at it like that. You, you probably when Lee Jones puts it past you, not, I'm not looking at Lee Jones. I'm looking at which defenders let me down. To let Lee Jones into school pass. There's a massive gap against watching this goal back today. Just check it with you and goal. And there's it gets put down the right channel and, and Jonah picks it up. And the, there's there's I don't know where the fullback is. The left side centre half is over this way, and he just gets this clean run through and he gets to about the edge of the six yard box as the centre half comes across and you're coming out and then he just pops into the far corner. But yeah, defending was horrendous. Problem, the, the problem is as well, as I'm probably thinking this is Jonah, you know, he's not a bad finisher, give him his due, you know. Yeah. Um, so, no, it's probably more you're gutted for the fact that, you know, the team that you're playing for is, has just lost in the last minute. Um, but I don't think you hold it against, uh, didn't hold anything against Jonah. You know, he's just doing his job. 
It was. I remember the afterwards the uh, coming back from Shrewsbury, just like massively buzzing. Me and my mates, as we everybody was, and it was that thing of because at that point in time, Jonah wasn't starting. We'd normally go over Leitron and Landy Morel, but the great thing about the side we had at that point in time, we had the Sam and Lee Jones. We had these four strikers that could either of the four could play, and it was when that chance came in that the last minute there. The one player of all four, no, no discredit to uh, the sound to Andy Morales, Lee Trundle. The one you wanted there was Lee Jones, just because of his finishing. It's like that's he. Uh, I'm getting goosebumps talking about this. I'm getting giddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to uh, I told before about the the Man City game, it was always going to come up because it was one of the the great performances of any Rexon player I can ever think of. Was <laughs> was yourself away at Manchester City in the what 98 99 season? Yeah. Uh, I guess it would have been. Um, a nil-nil draw where we should have got battered, being honest. The, the home game, to be fair, they were lucky to get a 1-0 win that season. They were really lucky. But the, the away game, they they should have battered us, but yourself was on ridiculous form. So there's a question here. There's a few questions here. But uh, we're all red on Red Passion. As, uh, the obvious question is, what did you have for dinner before the match at Main Road? <laughs> the honest answer is, I, d- I don't know. Um... Oh, because I, I lived just down the road from, I, I lived in Eaton Chapel just down the road from from the ground. So uh, I can't remember if I'd met the, the squad or just met them at the ground. But um, th- there wasn't anything particular. You know, I wasn't superstitious about what I had. It was usually like beans on toast or something like that. It was something quite light, but that would just give you a little bit of energy to keep going. So it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't Popeye spinach or anything like that. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd have kept, I'd have kept eating it. Uh, and there's, uh, I, I'm going to pronounce this weed, W-A-G-A-D, on passion. Is Did you know it was going to be one of those days before you walked on the pitch at Main Road? Um, no, is the honest answer. Um, but during the warm-up, it was, uh, the atmosphere in the ground was just phenomenal. Uh, it was a red-hot day. And I just, I'd, I'd really enjoyed the warm-up so I was I was actually you know quite bouncing myself um and then I think once I'd made those first couple of saves it was you know you were just I was just completely in the zone and I don't know it was just that that one moment where I actually fulfilled all the potential that you know I probably had yeah and this was like a city where and I had again <laughs> no, too harsh is that, mate. <laughs> oh, it's the city that Sean go to. It was it, even now, like they've got. I mean, they've got plans for a Sergio Aguero statue and a David Silva statue. And I think Vincent Company, and they've got all these Premier League winners. They've got their star strikers. They've, even Carlos Tevez is spelled out, which was so memorable. And even Mario Balotelli, they all love. But even now, with all the Premier League success they've got, the City fans still, so many of them refer to like Sean Gota as. What, like they're, they're probably their greatest ever striker in some of their eyes. The goat, the goat will score, as it were. Yeah. And you you kept him at bay. But in that game, how? Because I mean, obviously with a goalkeeper, one slight misstep, there's always that. It takes one split second for for something to go wrong. You could be having the game of your life uh, for eighty nine to ninety minutes, and then all of a sudden one slip at the end, and that's it. But how far into that game did you think like I'm having one here? I'm I'm doing all right here. I, I feel like I've got this. Um. I think the first half, you know, there was a couple of times when um, I'd saved things that, you know, probably shouldn't have done and should have gone in. And then, so I went in on a high after the first half, came out second half. And I think, I can't remember, there was there was a save. And I think Paul Dickoff, um, 
did me as well. You know, he came horrible up. bastard he is. <laughs> yeah, and there was a moment shortly after, and I, re- <laughs> I remember it perfectly because the ball came across, and he he was running to meet it, and I and I stopped because if I'd have carried on at the pace I was going, I'd have got to the ball first. But I purposely stopped my run because I thought I'm going to get that little shit back. <laughs> so I, 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 compl- I got there, punched the ball, completely wiped him out, landed on him, elbowed him in the head, and it was at that point I knew nothing could go wrong that day. Brilliant. Like, it, it, I, I like that you said that because as a fan watching match of the day and seeing him for years, or even seeing him against his Wrexham in that level, where it's like you you watch him play Paul Dick and you think, oh, he's a he's a ball bag. He looks like such a bell end. I'm, I'm sure it was. George Boateng one game uh, when Boateng went and played for Leicester or Villa, possibly. I think Dickov was for Leicester. And they end up in like a rock on the floor. I'm sure Dickov, because Boateng's boot came off, and I'm sure he threw his boot onto the roof of the stand. It's like, what? what, 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 what? It, it was, it was. Admittedly, it was very funny, but it just seems like a massive dick. So, Well, I think, listen, players are different animals when they're on the pitch. You can yeah. be the, the nicest guy off the pitch. Mark uh, Hughes, prime example. Yeah, yeah, no, he yeah. is. He's one of the nicest guys off the pitch. Really calm, really level-headed. But you put him on the field, and he's, you know, he's he's tough as old boots. And and I think that's that's the difference. So you know, until you actually get to know that people, what what you know, Paul Dickoff, you know, probably a prime example. He's probably a really nice guy off the pitch, but on the pitch, his his desire to win, his his mentality is such that he he will do whatever it takes. I like it. I like that. It's very diplomatically put again. Very nicely wound back. You're doing well here with this. <laughs> um, where are we with this? A question from Colonel D on Red Passion. Uh, do you feel you were given enough first-team opportunities at Wrexham? Um, I think Andy Marriott was, was such a good goalkeeper. It would have been hard for me to get any extra playing time. I got a couple of times, so... I think one of my first games was Colwyn Bay in the cup and you know little things that I got I got thrown in a couple of times here or there maybe played two or three games and Andy had come back and he'd be fit again um, I think where I let myself down and where the management let themselves down was when I worked incredibly hard to get into the team and then I probably relaxed too much when I was in the team because I thought oh I've made it yeah, and that was at the point where I should have actually been working harder to stay in the team, but also at the same time the management should have been talking to me and saying, "No, you you're going through a bad path, or you need to be working harder. You're not doing enough." Um, so that's probably my regret of my time at Wrexham was that I worked incredibly hard to get there, but then I didn't work hard enough to stay there. So I'm trying to think, like at the time, who will be number two of yourself? Because I know we had Dave Walsh, Dave, uh, Dave Walsh and Christian Rogers that were kind of coming through and they they played the next season. Um, I'm trying to think who, who would even be number two for to kind of push you on that one, I guess, for you to be well, taken I think out. It was, I think it was Walshie. Um, mm. Walshie and Christian. Were, were Whose birthday two. was yesterday as we're recording this, so happy belated birthday, Walshie. Yeah. <laughs> You've already wished it to him on the group. I know, I know, I know, but I've just... You know. <laughs> um, no, and, and again, probably because there was a... I know probably a five or six year age gap as well. That yeah, yeah. Um, again, I probably didn't see them as a big enough threat and, and took my foot off the gas. You know, it's um, like like I say. I mean, it's something that I took with me. Once I stopped, I always looked back and thought I didn't work hard enough there. So when my career ended, I knew that whatever I went into next, I would just you know give everything I've got. Yeah. Well, as a 
a question here, much like uh, last week with Neil Wainwright, Neil Wainwright the, the pivotal question for me was brown or red sauce with bacon butties. That's sealed the deal for me, which obviously the right answer is bacon. There's one here for, for you, Mark, from Wayne1983 on my passion. Is it dinner or tea, evening meal? It's tea. Good. Yes, it's tea. It, it is tea. Tea time. Yeah, I say it like it's like, this. Yeah, it's, it is tea. It's tea. It's tea time. <laughs> Dinner's in the middle of the day. Dinner's like 12, oh, exactly. 1 o'clock. Yeah, that's, that's dinner it. time. Yeah, exactly. None of this lunch and dinner bollocks. No, none of that, no, none of that bollocks. Um, L. Jones on uh, on Red Passion. Um, I, I love this. It's kind of, I don't know if it's really, it is a question, but it's not really a question, but I, I love it anyway. Is <laughs> Did you know that some of us fans, as in him and his mates, as he's put it, christened you Kung Fu Cartwright in reference to some of your superb martial arts moves in the sweeper-keeper role? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I didn't know that, but I... Uh... That all comes from the, the cruciate injury because really? basically after that, I, I made the decision that I would rather take somebody else out than then take me out. And, and back in those days as a goalkeeper, you could literally get away with, with everything. Yeah. Um, you know, if you came out and you put somebody into the, the advertising boards, all you had to do was say, sorry, ref, I was a bit slow there, wasn't I? And the ref would go, yeah, get back to your goal and, and you'd jog off. I remember... Um, I remember at one point, I'm not, I can't remember which team it was, but uh, thankfully there were no sky cameras. But there was a horrible striker, and he was he was he was always sort of jostling you on a on a corner. So I, I'd clock where the linesman was. I knew where the the referee was, and I knew that he couldn't see what was going to happen next. So as as the player kicked the ball, I hit him as hard as I could in his kidneys. He went down. I fell over him and I got the free kick because he pulled me down with him. So, you know, you could get away with a lot as a goalkeeper back in those days. Amazing. And I guess from now now going forward, you're going to start referring to yourself as Kung Fu Cartwright. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 no, the I, did, I did love a two-footed tackle or a high challenge. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. There is a, another comment here from a funny old game of Red Passion about they remember you uh, They remember you for heading the ball outside your box at least once a match. Which I guess ties, yeah. <laughs> ties into that. <laughs> coming out to smash people and make early clearances. Yeah, um, I also made a few cock-ups as well by coming flying out of my box. Never. No, we forget about them. It's all right. It's okay. It's 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 memories <laughs> have gone of those. Uh, and Dougie Davis, uh, which is a bit more of a serious question. And we have got your all-time eleven coming up, I'm sure. Um of Rexham players. Uh yeah, they want to know who was the best Rexham player you played with? Just one. Ooh. That's tough to narrow down. Well, that, that's going to kill me that one, because like we said before, there's been there's been so many. Um, I'm not going to say Carl because everybody's going to say Carl. I thought you were going to say Carl. Um, so, Wardy, Tony Eames. No, I think I'm probably going to go with uh, Yozza. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I, I think. Uh, you know, had had all the ability, the mentality, and he and he was a he was a cracking lad as well. He's a funny lad, yeah. you know. So I, I'd say, uh, yeah, from from Wrexham. I went on to play Premier League for what with obviously with Birmingham with Charlton. I, I'm not sure if Hull was in the Premier League or not, <coughs> but yeah, he went on to do all right for himself. Um, he did very well for himself. Yeah, but yeah. There, there were there were several players that that went on and did did very well for themselves. Yeah. Um, I, who's if the, the back, if you go back if I go back to the Kung Fu Cartwright when. Uh, I remember playing 
for the reserves against Shrewsbury and Joey Jones told me that they had a big horrible lump up front and that the first opportunity I get just just go through him so I did and uh, I went you know cross came in I came out banged the ball smashed him he went off and uh, we signed him the following year Dean Spink Dean Spink and he came <laughs> in the room and he looked at me and he went you you bastard you broke my ribs so I'd, I'd, uh, I'd knackered him completely, but Joey told, it's all Joey's fault. He told me to do it. I, I'd see, to be fair with Dean's, but when we signed him, it was, I remember it just being a bit like, well, he's going from Shrewsbury. Ooh. Um, and then obviously the, we, we still had fresh in the memory was still Gary Bennett, uh, like yeah. prime Gary Bennett, even though when Bennett came back the year before, he, he wasn't, he didn't quite do what he did the years prior, but still we were thinking Gary Bennett. We're used to Carl being Carl and obviously Carl was still there. Um, and then you're thinking, Okay, it's Dean Spinks to come in. He's going to score goals, and he he wasn't about that though. That wasn't his play. No. It was more the the hold up play and the flick ons. And I, I, Carl had says to me, Carl Carl said to me at one point, and I think this might be the evening with we did at the fat ball, where he said that his favourite person to play up front with ever was Dean Spink. And it's like, well, nice. if it's good enough for Carl, it's it's good enough for me. Yeah, no, he was a good guy. He was a he was a tough centre forward, you know, and he could put himself about. I oh, played centre half as well at one yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in that. He was in that Dion Dublin. Yeah, that, it's just him and Dion Dublin. That's it. Just two players. Yeah. Uh, the only yeah. two players I've ever seen that play centre back and, and up front. <laughs> no, but Dino was a, was a good player, but thankfully, and he was a big lad as well. So thankfully, yeah. he forgave me for breaking his ribs. A big lad. Joey Jones told me to do it. <laughs> a big lad with a very strong tan as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and uh, I guess the, the final fan question we've got here, it's not actually a fan question. It was um, Mark McGregor has, has chimed in with a question, um, which he's, he's too fair. He's put the end of this message off the record. But if it's too bad, I can cut it out before it makes air. Uh, do you remember any Wednesday pub crawls in Gressford and Rosset than Weatherspoons in Chester and playing pool? <laughs> do I remember them? Mm. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to say, yeah. We'll just we'll we'll, we'll call it there. Um, now it's the the final part of the podcast, there, Mark. Where this is where you've got to pull a Wrexham eleven out of your ass. Yeah, but you know, I've been thinking about this, and obviously, my my sort of career as it is now is about putting a squad together. I don't okay. actually get to choose the eleven, so I'm going to put a 25 man squad together. That uh, that's all right. I'm all right with that. That's yeah. Like I like what you're thinking, and we can we can um, we can work some moves out in, in there as well. Yeah. So okay. So for the three goalkeepers, I'm going to go for first, second, and a younger third choice. So I'm going to go for Andy Marriott. I'm going to have to put myself in there just because I'm going to. And then yeah. Walsh. Two right backs. I've got Macca and Barry Jones. Nice. Two left backs. I've got Delboy and Phil Hardy. Midfield, sorry, the centre-halves, I've got Barry Hunter, Brian Carey, Mark Satori and Tony Humes. Very good for. And then centre-mid, I've got Brian Hughes, Gaz Owen, Wayne Phillips, Rooster and Mike Lake. Mike Lake, what a player. Yeah, and then uh, wingers, Chalky, Lugger, Wally and Kizzer. And then uh, strikers would be Benno, Wacko, Neil Roberts... Lee Jones and Jake Edwards. Now, if you want me to pick, if you want to, me to pick a starting eleven, I'm going to struggle. But well, I, 
you you kind of get the out because of what you've gone on to do after your playing career, where for you it's all about squads. So I can technically I can let this slide. So if anyone else is listening, any any other players who might be on this soon, then don't think this is a normal. This is Mark Alright taking the piss, but it's okay. It's okay because of your career. But I mean, if you want to put an eleven together, I'm not gonna say no. No. <laughs> To, uh, because to be the problem is, is there's there's so there's some there's some you know I, I never wanted to be a manager and this has just again gone to me. This is why I never wanted to be a manager because there's there's so many good players on there. You know how do you choose between a Gazone and a Wayne Phillips, for example, or a Chalky and a Kizza? You know you, you, it's it's difficult. You know and also you know there's going to be you know Lugger's going to be thinking he's going to be in everybody's team, so I'm just going to stick him in the squad and and tell him he's got to work for it. Yeah, maybe he gets a game, maybe he doesn't. It's down to him. Exactly, it's down to him. It's up to him now. Too busy drinking Prosecco these days. He, he, yeah. No, he isn't he just? <laughs> um, I, I like still, that. And he still sticks thin as well. I, I, yeah, I know. He's been a busy bee over this last year with the, the pandemic and stuff. And by busy, it means that golf whenever he can and Prosecco. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I like your concept of a 25-man squad, so I'll... I'll keep that. I'll let that go for now. Yeah, that's all right. For nobody else, yeah. it works. But for you, it works. So we're all Thank right. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm trying to figure it out. I've had sleepless nights over this. It's supposed to be tricky. That's the whole point. Is I know uh, Neil Wainwright, as soon as we agreed he was going to do an episode, his, his big panic was he was texting me saying like, oh, I don't know what to do about my left back. Like, I love playing with, with Darren Brace, <laughs> but like Phil Hardy, I played, he was there for longer and... And so I was like, well, you know, you can put Darren in right back if you want, but then you've got no Mark McGregor. That's the whole point. It's not supposed to be easy, but you've, yeah. you've managed the, to wangle out of that. Yeah, the problem is, is because I was there at Wrexham for seven years, I played with a lot of different people. So, you know, it'd be a lot easier if you were like Wally and you only played there for a couple of years. Oh, that's harsh. That's, that's a slight dig. <laughs> <laughs> um, brilliant. That's a great time to end it. Uh, Mark, all right, this has been absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you so much for giving up so much time, mate. This is massively appreciated. Oh, I loved it. My this pleasure. Been... I've enjoyed it, mate. Really, have it. This has been fun. Um, <laughs> this... we'll, get... we'll have a Christmas do this year, hopefully. Maybe, yeah, maybe. But... And if Macca wants to sort of do the uh, the pub crawls again, I'm, I'm happy to try. <laughs> I, that, that, that'd be an interesting last man standing between you two, I, I'd imagine, to see. <laughs> Uh, but this this has been episode four of the Wrexham Legends Lounge podcast in association with Hill Street Social. I'm getting a knack of this now. It's, it's only taking oh, me four man. weeks. I know. Nailed on. Uh, this has been Mark Cartwright. I've been Andrew Pollard. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, be sure to like, subscribe, comment if you're watching this on YouTube or like, follow and all that other stuff you do on, on podcast platforms, which this is available on all of them now. So no excuse not to do that. Uh, but thanks for listening. Thanks for watching in. And thank you to Mark Cartwright. And we'll see you all soon. But wait, before myself and Mark had the chat that you've just listened to, uh, we talked for a couple of minutes about Mark's role currently working as a consultant for the FA, which is a fascinating few minutes, which is well worth uh, listening. So this is me, my way of shoehorning this in. Thanks for listening. So at the moment, uh, I'm on a consultancy with the FA. Um, So when, probably going back about, four or five years now, the, when Dan Ashworth was technical director of, of England um, and he wanted to profession, the only part of football that wasn't professional was the sporting director, the technical director and the, the recruitment side of things. So he wanted to professionalise that as much as he could. So they came up with three or four different talent ID programmes that were like your uh, coaching badges. 
and they got to what would be classed as the A license, which was the level four. And then, so I, I sat on that, uh, was invited by the FA to go and sit on that. And I did it with Steve Walsh, who was obviously uh, Leicester at the time. In fact, that year he won the, won the title. Keith Thelwell, who was at Wolves. Uh, Nicky Hammond, who was at Reading and then went to West Brom and Celtic. And we were the sort of the main, the main ones on that course. And it was being... It was being run by Dan and a guy called Mike Rigg, who was a community officer at Wrexham many, many years. Well, when I first came to Wrexham, he was a, a football and the community guy, and he, he's done really well with himself. Um, so he, he, they were doing it. And then from that, we realised that there wasn't um, a sporting director's one that was the equivalent of the, the pro licence. So a group of us, um, which then included Paul Mitchell, who was at Spurs, he's now at Monaco. Yeah. Harry, um, Big Baz from Liverpool came on it. Um, so I think there was, there was a couple more. Ross Wilson, who's now at Rangers. You know, so a group of us piloted and, and built this the modules that we felt were needed to be a technical director. So when I left Stoke, these courses are now running. Um, and so when I left Stoke, I just spoke to the guy. And I've been going there as a guest and presenting or doing whatever, um, so whichever cohort was in, whether it was level four or level five, and they just said, look, will you, will you come on board for this, this 18 month period um, for, this, for this cohort of the level five? So it's a consultancy where I'm mentoring the next group of potential sports directors or technical directors or whatever clubs want to call them. See, I told you it was a fascinating few more minutes. Uh, what a career Mark Cartwright's had from lowly goalkeeper to football agent to technical director at a Premier League club to then now working as a consultant for the FA. What a ride and what a lovely fella. Um, thanks uh, to Mark for giving us so much time to have this natter. Thanks to you for listening. And we'll be back next week with Gareth Owen in the hot seat. That should be an absolute blast. Catch you soon. Russia, Russia.